Hey, welcome to the Talking to Ourselves podcast. I'm Omid Farhang, CCO at Momentum. My guest today is Scott Donaton. Now, when I first reached out to Scott about a month ago to do the podcast, he was Global Chief Creative and Content Officer at Digitas. Since then, he has made the jump to an exciting new position as Head of Creative at Hulu. Scott's path to prominence is fascinating and quite different from any of my previous guests. He got his start on the press side as the editor and eventual publisher of Ad Age for over a decade. He then went on to become the publisher of Entertainment Weekly. In 2005, he authored Madison and Vine, a book that prophesied the convergence of entertainment and advertising and the dawn of branded content. In 2009, he became Global Chief Content Officer at Interpublic Group's UM, where he led a team of award-winning content strategists and producers around the globe for clients like Chrysler, Coca-Cola, J&J, BMW, and Sony. From 2015 until this Friday, he's played a variety of creative leadership roles at Digitas, culminating in the global CCO position. There, he also spearheaded the Digitas New Front, a conference-style event that became a flagship of the annual pitches to digital ad buyers in New York. He was inducted into the Advertising Hall of Achievement and honored as one of the 21 most intriguing people in media. He served as president of the branded content and entertainment jury at Cannes twice. His thought leadership has been published in numerous media outlets, including Fast Company, Adweek, Huffington Post, and Business Insider. Now, he hasn't begun his new role at Hulu yet, so this is actually a great moment of transition to pick the brain of one of our industry's renaissance men. This is Scott Donatin and I talking to ourselves. Without putting any previous guests on blast, um, sometimes I ask people to do the pod, and then they say yes, they come, and we talk about all the important and gratifying work that they're doing at an agency that by the time I post the episode, they have left. (laughs) So I started, we started emailing about doing the pod maybe a couple months ago. And I'm really glad we waited because this is a very interesting time to talk to people, you know, when they're in that, you know, those rare moments of transition. Right. And when we, when we actually got back to this being the possibility, I still had not formally accepted there, but I knew that there was a chance that I'd be like, hopefully it'll still be interesting to him given that it's still a creative role, especially. So, well, that's what's funny. I'll talk to somebody for, you know, 90 minutes. It's happened a couple of times. And then a month later, they'll announce that they're going to an exciting new job. And I'll just think to myself, like, you know, maybe it wasn't a done deal, but you knew this was in the back of your head. Right, exactly. Um, We start all these conversations in the same spot, which is where are you from and what did your parents do? Okay. We've begun. We've begun. Yeah, we've begun. <laughs> uh, I, I grew up mostly in Brooklyn, New York, so I'm an original. I, I grew up in a, a parochial, uh, mob-controlled Italian Brooklyn. Um, my parents got divorced when I was pretty young. My my mom worked uh, two or three jobs often just, just to just to pay the rent and, and, and keep us going. My dad ended up doing an interesting startup of a company that makes safety swimming pool covers, which my sister now runs. So I was about to say that sounds like a mob cover, but okay, if your sister runs it, then it must be legit. Yeah, that that side that side of the family was legit. <laughs> <laughs> and what did uh, what did twelve year old Scott want to be when he grew up? Uh, you know, for 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 better or worse, I, I wanted to be a writer from a very young age. I remember, um, rightly or wrongly, I think my mom backs me up on this. A, a teacher in third grade. Um, complimenting my limericks that I had written, and I don't remember any of them, so so uh, don't ask. But uh, uh, kind of had this this reading bug and, and a writing bug from a very early age, and wound up uh, editing my high school newspaper, uh, editing my college newspaper. You know, any anywhere I could anywhere I could write from an early age, 
um, or, or read. Those are basically the two things I always wanted to do. Yeah, normally there's a transition in that question from, you know, I wanted to be a movie star or a writer to I became attracted to um, the advertising profession and I wanted to be Dan Wyden or David Ogilvy, depending on the person's um, generation they grew up in. But for you, it's it, well, probably wasn't Dan Wyden. It was probably Jan Winner. Uh, it was Jimmy Breslin, actually. Yeah. I, I grew up uh, reading uh, the New York Daily News uh, and uh, wanted to be a, a crime columnist like Jimmy Breslin or a street columnist, someone who just captured uh, life on the street. Okay, so with that in mind, you go to St. John's, you get a journalism degree, um, you, you take a couple jobs that lead you to ad age in around 1996. At, at that point, what is your relationship to marketing? Were you actually fascinated by the subject matter or, or was it just you found a good job? So the interesting thing is I actually found a, a good job that was not an internship but a part-time job at, at age in 1987 while I was still in college and, and wound up working there um, uh, during summer breaks and part-time during through my last two years of college. And, and it was kind of uh, knew someone who knew someone. I, I had a uh, uh, the wife of my second cousin, um, since I'm Italian, I also consider her my cousin, uh, was working at AdAge. They were looking for someone part-time to work on a section they had called MediaWorks. Uh, and I landed this job, worked there for two years. And then uh, coming out of college, coming out of St. John's, I really wanted to go work at the Daily News or Sports Illustrated or Rolling Stone. Uh, and I, I put in Spy Magazine at the time. I'm dating myself. Uh, sent resumes out to all these places. I still have the rejection letters from Kurt Anderson, among others. Uh, and uh, at the same time, got offered a, eventually a researcher position at Sports Illustrated, and AdAge was offering me a full-time reporting job. Uh, and so I, I kind of, as with a lot of people, sort of fell into uh, that trade uh, area did, wasn't even aware of it when I went to college. But what became quickly fascinating for me was the fact that we covered all of culture, that you could learn so much about culture, even though it was a, a B2B. You know. And so early on, I realized even if I'm staying in B2B journalism, it was basically going to have to stay in the ad age variety billboard kind of you know publications that also tapped into pop culture because that's where my personal passions were. Yeah, Variety, Sports Illustrated, Rolling Stone, they haven't actually changed that much over the decade, um, you know, for good or bad. How different was ad age in the late 80s and early 90s compared to what we know today? Was it still sort of fixated with the agency doing the best work? Was it still covering, you know, CMOs who were pushing the envelope? How, how different was it than the ad age we know today? You know, I think I think the core of um, – and obviously I'm, I haven't been in there in a long time, but I still have friends who, who are and, and people who worked with me then who are, who are still there. Uh, the core of Ad Age has always been that the marketer is their primary audience, and and I think when Adweek came along, they had the agency as their primary audience, and it was often uh, a point of differentiation in a good way, a slight shift in the filters maybe that went against uh, how we covered things. I think I think the brand Ad Age is the same. I remember the, the the difference. The main difference, obviously, is that when I got there, they, the focus was on the weekly. Magazine, and there was this sense that even as we began to branch into other things, and and we went online in 1992 with Prodigy, and then eWorld, and then built the first website in '95. It was one of the earliest magazine uh, websites. But but initially, and for a while, there was this sense that um, this weekly magazine was the <coughs> core of the brand. Excuse me, and had to be <coughs> frog in the throat, protected at all costs. And um, and these other things were spinoffs of that. And and I left AdAge briefly to launch uh, TV Guide Online and came back to AdAge as executive editor and then editor. And when I came back, I told Rance Crane, who owned AdAge then, uh, listen, I don't care if AdAge exists as a weekly print publication 
five years or 10 years or 20 years from now, I care that it's the leading brand of information in its space delivered in whatever way makes the most sense for the audience. And I think at that point, we really shifted to brand in the center and then the weekly being one of the ways in which that brand was expressed. But I think the core mission of the brand has held true mm -hmm. over the years. You were there from you know 96 to 07. So everything you're describing is happening in parallel with sort of the proliferation of digital media. Um, how did you see the marketing communities? relationship to the marketing press change over that time? How much more were like, you know, agency PR people vying for your affection and, and sucking up to you? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> there was quite there was quite a bit, um, quite, <laughs> quite a bit. And, uh, you know, you had to, <clears throat> it was an interesting thing. I, I remember early on, somebody told me, you know, none of these people are your friends. Um, and, and it actually turned out not to be completely true, because a lot of those people are my friends to this day. But for the years that I was at AdAge, I probably held a lot of people, including people uh, whom I personally liked and wanted to be friends with, I held them at an arm's distance. And I had to because I, I had a few people where I would say to them, sometimes when I would first get close to someone, you realize that if something happens, if you get blown out of the water tomorrow and we hear something and, our report, and, and the reporting is accurate and fair, but it doesn't reflect well on you, that's the story that we're going to write. Uh, and every once in a while, someone would forget that and they'd get to a point where there might be what you would call a bad story that was going to come out about them. And I once got a call from someone who said, well, my kids and the holidays. And I just said, dude, that's so unfair. I've told you like all along, is, is the story fair? Is it accurate? Is it worthy of our audience's time? And, and if so, all the other obligations have to go away. But it, it, it's interesting in that it kept a lot of – it kept me from – uh, deepening a lot of friendships uh, while I was there, even among people whom I really liked. The thing that fascinates me about your career is just that shift from covering it to doing it. And, you know, you talked about Sports Illustrated. I grew up a lover of sports journalism. And so now as a marketer, I think about this all the time. And you're probably the, you know, the preeminent person to have this conversation with. No one can conflate the ability required to be a professional athlete versus professional journalist who covers sports. Those are very those are two very different skill sets, but the same can't necessarily be said of the professional marketer versus the professional journalist who covers marketing. It's not the same skill set, but there is some overlap. So I often wonder, like, what would compel a person with the requisite talent and interest to cover marketing uh, rather than to pursue a career in marketing? And you obviously were confronted by that. But I think about it all the time as I see some really talented um, uh, marketing journalists who I think to myself, like, you'd be great at this job. You're articulate. You're interested in culture. You're a geek for the business. Like, that's not the whole skill set, but that's a pretty good start. You know, I think about I, I'm still that person who, frankly, at a party, I can be really social, but uh, half the time at a, at a party, I kind of wander into a corner and just start watching uh, other people. And I think there was something about journalism. It was these, the idea that you got to kind of stand aside to some degree. Um, maybe there's something uh, in there that's kind of judgmental or something that keeps you other than or separate from uh, as well, if we want to turn this into a psychological session. But, uh, <laughs> but I think, you know, there, there, there was something really cool about being that objective observer. I remember uh, at a time when we were really talking about how you know, digital was going to sink a lot of businesses that weren't going to be able to transform or if they wouldn't, you know, take the steps to transform. And somebody uh, confronted me one day at a conference and said, you know, you're killing the industry. And, and what, you know, do you want to kill the industry? You're supposed to promote the industry. And I said, uh-uh, we are not supposed to promote the industry. We're supposed to cover it. And if the industry dies, then what we'll do is we'll cover it right up until that last day. And then we'll put out our final edition and we'll shut down and I'll go do journalism somewhere else covering something else. And, and there was kind something there was something just 
kind of cool about being able to stand aside and 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 watch and observe and also that bird's eye view because uh, in any given time I was often talking to marketers, media companies, agencies, and others, and and they often didn't realize that they were having the same conversation. And so there was that cool sense of occasionally you could pull a thread here, pull a thread there, pull another one, and then realize that they all tied up together into something bigger, which became, you know, when you do it right, people say that journalists are at age and it's best could see around corners. And it was really the fact that you were talking to a lot of people who were so heads down in, in their own jobs that they weren't talking to each other and making those connections for them. Yeah. You, you talked about growing up in mob-run Brooklyn. You know the, you know, when, in the mob when the mob lawyer suddenly decides that, you know, he's not a lawyer anymore. He's a wise guy. You know, like it's Sean Penn and Carlito's way a little bit. Like at what point – was there a, a specific moment or was there a year when all of a sudden you went from being fascinated in, you know – you know, creative leaders of agencies to thinking to yourself, you know, maybe, maybe I am one of these guys. You know, it was almost by accident. I, I, I was the editor of AdAge. I'd been in that role for um, between executive editor and editor for about 10 years. And AdAge came to me and said, listen, the publisher is retiring and we know you are a journalist. And we think you're going to say no to us, but we really think you know the brand better than anyone else. You've been very involved in the digital transformation. I'm sure they didn't say it in these words, but essentially, do you want to be the publisher? Because we'd like you to do that. And my first reaction was absolutely not. Uh, and then somebody I was talking to along the way said, hey, don't look at it as leaving journalism. Uh, look at it as helping to figure out the future of how to monetize good journalism. And that, that may have been a line that just allowed me to justify the move, um, but it did. And I, and I went over to the publishing side of media. And then a year or so into being publisher of Ad Age, I got a call from Time Inc. saying, hey, would you want to be publisher of Entertainment Weekly? And uh, it was like, yep, I want to do that now. I'm not sure if I'm qualified, but let's let's try that. Uh, and and to fast forward, when I left uh, EW, uh, I was in that first point in my life where I could stop and decide uh, what I wanted to do next. And I got a call from um, – I had, had some meetings right away, Jackie Kelly uh, at UM and Matt Seiler and then Nick Bryan, who was then at Interpublic, um, had all reached out to me from – pretty much the day after I left EW uh, to say, hey, we'd like you to come over here and, and, and create a, a content practice. And my first reaction was absolutely not. I do not want to work at agencies. You people are dinosaurs and I'm, I'm out. And, um, and at one point, we, we, we did that dance for months uh, and I was looking at other options and doing some consulting. And Nick Bryan basically said to me one day, listen, you've been an observer and as an observer, you've written about how you believe, you know, um, Branded content such a terrible word, but branded content can can change uh, the business, can be the future of marketing. Why don't you stop being an observer and be a practitioner? Essentially, Nick said, put your money where your mouth is. And that felt like a challenge. And at that point, I just realized I had to do it. People who work at agencies can really succeed with a background in journalism, or maybe they wanted to be a lawyer. And all of a sudden, it's like, you know, the skills it takes to be a lawyer and sort of like, you know, to dumb it down and like making a case actually can be very helpful in making a case for an idea. Right. Um, did you ever work with a journalist at Ad Age, someone who worked under you, who you were like, man, like you would be the next Alex Bogusky or David Droga if you if you like got off the sidelines and into the game, so to speak. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I mean, one of them was actually um, Jonah Bloom. I don't know if you know Jonah, but he's still a good friend of mine. Jonah replaced me um, as as editor of Ad Age, and then he went into a consumer journalism role, and then he ended up at KBS, 
um, as initially kind of a content guy and then and then became a strategist and then became the global chief strategy officer at KBS. And now he's doing this startup company. And it's, it's, it's a little different. It's not the Boguski kind of path in terms of creativity, but he's definitely someone who He's got a wicked sharp brain, and when he came out of um, uh, being the observer as a journalist and being to, into being a participant, if you want to define it that way, um, his brain has definitely um, done some really good stuff for him. Yeah, co- covering the industry is like the best. I would have to think that's actually like a, a, a – it seems circuitous, but it's actually the best way to learn about the industry and to become a student of the industry and to find out it, it what your passion is. It was an incredible education. It was an incredible seat. I've had nothing in my career. Agencies are probably the next – best thing only in that you are talking to media companies and clients in different industries and so you realize when very quickly how many people especially on the the, again i hate the word client side but client side are um they really are parochial in their viewpoint by necessity right it's not um hopefully they're also students of the business i really cannot stand when i meet people who are who, who make a living here and aren't students of the excuse me of the business but there are so many clients where you realize their day-to-day job is so focused just on their own company that they're often not even fully aware of what their competitive set is doing. Totally. Never mind what other industries are doing that they can learn from. And 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 that bird's eye view that that age gave me where every week I was talking to people from all every industry, from automotive to packaged goods to fast foods to media companies, from internet to magazine publishing to out of home to radio to TV to agencies of every kind, from PR to direct. And you just realized, like, you just had this view. And sometimes things that felt obvious to you, you suddenly real, realized weren't obvious to others. And that was kind of the fun of being a journalist. Like, sometimes people would literally very kindly say to me, like, Oh, how did you, you see around corners or you identify? And it's like, it really wasn't some trick. It was just, I was talking to so many people from so many different places and often therefore able to pull, you know, sight of things that were coming that, you know, before they could. And, and it, it, incredible education, incredible way to start a career and probably would have been an incredible way. I wouldn't go back to now, but probably would have been an incredible way to spend a career as well. Yeah, and you had written a book that sort of foretold the the explosion of branded content as we know it today. Um, you were the can jury president for branded entertainment. Um, and so it's it's obviously a passion point of yours. And it's funny the way you describe it as almost like unwittingly connecting, excuse me, it's almost like you unwittingly collected these skills that made you qualified to be like, you know, an expert in branded content within an, an agency and help move that um, move that discipline forward. Um, so it's 2019. Where are we as an industry with branded content? Is it is it fully matured? Is it still in its infancy? Is it a, a teenager with potential and zits? Um, yeah, it's it's a great question. The the answer is it's it's um, in some ways moved dramatically forward from where it was, um, you know, ten fifteen years ago, and in other ways, unfortunately, is in the exact same place. And I and I Jay Goodman and I talk about this a lot. That like, can you believe how far we've come in some ways? Um, and and how much we're we're you know still in the same place and others it's it's often used as a kind of shorthand that it's still a little bit sad to note that BMW films might still be one of the best things done in this space but but there's been some tremendous things the the Grand Prix winner uh, this year I got to serve for a second time as the jury president of the entertainment jury at Cannes. Uh, and the Grand Prix went to 5B, a documentary from Johnson & Johnson about the nurses who built the first AIDS ward in San Francisco in 1983. Uh, and it's just an incredible film that was accepted as a film, not as not as a piece of advertising, but as a film at the Cannes Film Festival. Uh, was acquired 
um, by Verizon for distribution uh, and and basically achieve the highest level of what you want this stuff to achieve, which is it was treated like anything else out there that's worthy of someone's time uh, while also being very connected to a brand's objectives. So I think there's some beautiful work being done right now, but but on the front lines of it, it's still very uphill. There are so many marketers that still don't believe in it, that still want to fall back on just spending on performance media uh, that don't believe. You know, the question you get all the time is, I'm not sure if it works, or I guess the question format would be, does it work? Um, and And the answer is, no matter how much we prove, that content can actually outperform traditional forms of advertising in almost any point in the consumer decision journey, you still get stuck back to, I'm not sure if it works and therefore I'm gonna tiptoe into it, I'm gonna spend experimentally. Um, and there aren't that many brands that have truly committed to uh, storytelling uh, and, and moving past interruptive formats as the way forward. Yeah, as you served on the, on the the uh, as the jury president for brand entertainment this year, like. In 2019, what percentage of the entries feel like the role of the brand is clear and unimpeachable and it's art driving commerce forward versus entries that feel maybe artistic, maybe beautiful, maybe like, you know, epic filmmaking, but ultimately sort of feel like vanity over, you know, effective yeah, I mean, I'm making it up, but probably around 50-50. It was really yeah. interesting that in the early rounds of judging, it's very easy to get rid of the stuff that the entire jury independently, because when you go back and discuss in some cases why something didn't advance, it's, well, that was an ad. And and I think the funny thing is you, you still know the difference between something that feels like uh, it's it's interrupting, it's intruding, and more importantly, it's brand first as opposed to audience first. Um, and, and then you have those things. And I think, you know, what's really interesting is I'll get asked, and it's a fair question, on something like the J&J AIDS documentary. Now, that's obviously not designed to sell more you know, Q-tips, that, but that is connected um, very much to a 100-year commitment that J&J has made to celebrating nurses as frontline caregivers. They're not my client, by the way. They used to be. Um, <laughs> I'm talking about them so, so uh, knowledgeably. But um, really amazing in that way, supporting a corporate mission, um, obviously not necessarily designed to, to push product, but I think the key is when you have things that aren't really heavily branded like that, it's not about that piece of content itself. It's about the ways in which you surround and activate it that you can actually get more of the business value out of it. So I've been encouraging brands more and more, don't worry about using that piece of content necessarily for you know product placement opportunities and spoken word opportunities. Let that reflect the values of what you're doing and then use other forms of media to surround and activate that and, and, and drive to purchase or, or you know, whatever you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, you created a content studio at UM. You created a, a content uh, arm at Digitas. Like, over the last 10 years, does it feel like if I had to, like, boil down your one great challenge as you wake up and put your pants on and go to work every day, is it basically, like, trying to sell CMOs things that you wish they wanted more than they actually did. That's that's sadly a good way to put it. <laughs> I think it's um it's it's walking uphill and and I and you know a lot of times I'm asked internally at our agency the, the both agencies that I've worked at, hey, uh, by the recruiters, what are we looking for when we hire for you? What skill sets are we looking for? And I say, you know, the truth is this is a space now, now you've got people who've spent maybe their whole career uh, in this space, but for a long time you were hiring from other places. You're hiring journalists, producers, um, media planners. It was an incredible mix of skill sets that would come in and somehow work in this 
space. And what, so eventually what I told our recruiters was it, there are some craft skills that you may be looking for, but what you're really looking for is a passionate belief that this is the future or part of the future of where marketing has to go. Because if somebody really doesn't believe in this space, they're going to get worn out pretty quickly. And, and you've got to have, so what kept me going every day was just that I honestly believed that we were helping to define the path forward and, and helping brands to make something better. And that was worth walking uphill for. Yeah. I, I wonder how much of great branded entertainment can happen sort of tail to tip within the agency versus relinquishing control to production entities who live and breathe it every day. Um, as someone who has started multiple in-house um, content studios, what's your view on that? Uh, my view is it's 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 got to be this. This sounds I'm, I'm not going to just fall back on hey it's collaboration, but it's collaboration. Yeah. Um, it's about uh, to me it was always that we didn't just know um, the brand and what they were trying to accomplish, but we knew the best storytellers, we knew the best story creators, uh, producers, uh, whether that's in Hollywood or elsewhere. And to me, a lot of the magic is pulling those pieces together, uh, knowing what you're good at, knowing what others are great at. Uh, you know, it's really interesting. When I worked at UM, I did this, they, they were a media agency. So in effect, the content arm becomes the creative arm to some degree and gets a lot of control over projects. When you work at a creative agency, and Digitas is both a creative agency and a media agency, you know, it's still true that a lot of creatives, uh, if it's not invented here, it's not good enough somehow. Right. Uh, and one of the accomplishments that I'm proud of over the last couple of years is getting a lot of our creators to realize, hey, you can work with some of the greatest storytellers in the world and make better things with them. Um, and and I think it really is about um, the, the bringing those different entities together because I've seen brands work directly minus their agencies um, with production companies and others, and often they, the, the brand's objectives get lost pretty quickly and they can get run over um, and left in the road because the truth is a lot of creators still, you know, kind of don't necessarily want to do this and would really like it best if brands just, like, gave them money and then went away yeah. or sat quietly at the table. Uh, and they're so nice. They're so nice <laughs> during the production calls. Exactly. And then you hire them and they're like, you know. The creative control is just a, is, is a, is a fascinating topic because I think it's like to, to crack into this business as a creative, as a young creative, almost requires a little bit of like irrational confidence in your abilities. You know, I haven't sat in – I've never sat in an edit before, but I have good taste. So I'm going to tell this editor who's been doing this for 20 years what I think is good. And like you want that from young creatives who you hire. Even if they're wrong, you know, like you want them to have confidence to be decisive and make decisions and then maybe you – you know, you help them understand the the implications of those decisions. But um, you're right. It's it's something in between, like, creatives need to have that irrational confidence. But if you're going to hire some of the best content creators in the world, a person who has devoted their lives to documentary for two decades, a production company that, you know, you want to make a unscripted series and you've got ideas about what it is, but you've just hired the creators of Chopped and Next Food Network Star and they've developed 10 shows um, – and if you don't speak up, they will take your money and make their show. Exactly. And so it's just that push and pull is like there's not a right answer. It's just it's it's one of the joys and challenges of the job, I guess. Yeah, I mean the creative tension can be healthy. One of the first things I did that I'm still one of the things I'm proudest of when I was at uh, UM and uh, it wasn't even a UM client. It was another agency within Interpublic that came and said, hey, we heard you guys do this. Can you help? It was for Denny's, and we created a comedy series with Jason Bateman and Will Arnett. Yeah. Um, and we ended up doing uh, two seasons of it. And the creative tension was 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 high all the way through every part of that process. But it, but it all uh, served to uh, make the project better and make the content better and make the whole thing stronger. And then I've also been in cases where it just – 
causes everything to fall apart. And, you know, it's, it's, I actually think that that was often uh, our line as the agency. I hate to kind of reduce it to translator, but we spoke both languages, right? Sure. And, and these are industries, you know, advertising and Hollywood, which were very close together in the earliest days of radio and TV, and then kind of went to their respective coasts. And there's a lot of distrust now and, and differing agendas. And I think the ability to kind of understand both and, and, and help each side get what they need it's actually a pretty pretty um, important skill in this space. Yeah, I know that uh, that Denny's work well, and as a fan of Arrested Development, I remember watching that and thinking it would be a dream come true to work with Jason Bateman and Will Arnett. And I, I recall that was sort of around the time that they had developed Dum Dum, which was their production company. I don't know if it's if it was basically created for that project or if it stuck around, but it's like part of the joy of working with talented people like that is that you know there's something that's like uncompromised about their comedy and their art. Do you ever feel like the struggle is like, hi, I'm a big fan of yours. I'm the guy who's here to, to make you compromise. Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, I, I've been in, I've been in cases where sometimes I, I think my job is to help people understand like, Hey, you can actually do great storytelling and the brand is the one that's enabling you to do it. And, and that's great. But, but yeah, there, there've been cases. Um, there was a project I was working on with a pretty well-known documentary director. I won't name right now. But we got to a point where some of the client feedback and requests got so ridiculous, and I knew I had to pass them on that I would call him and say, okay, this is the phone call in which you tell me to go fuck myself. This is the one in which you tell me you're not doing this, right? And I have to say that every time he would kind of hang up the phone and call me back within an hour and go, okay, I've got a way to do it that I think protects the integrity of the story I'm trying to tell and accomplishes what the brand uh, is trying to do. And I have to say, um, two or three times in that process, I was like, okay, please, this time, tell me to take a hike. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> and he held through with it, but it, it was, it's hard sometimes. It's hard. Have sometimes. you ever worked with a, a director or a, a talent who you've admired for a long time? Like, I feel like you're not really in this industry until you get to work with someone you really admire who unfairly accuses you of being the suit in the room who's trying to ruin everything. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, uh, again, I, 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 I'd be better if I named names, but, but I, <laughs> I won't. But th there, was a, there was a Hollywood talent, um, well-known, both in front of and behind uh, the screen, and, and, and he was screaming at me one day on a call, and I happened to be working from home. And my girlfriend kept going, making this, this kind of quizzical face as she looked at me because she could overhear this screaming because it was coming out of the phone. And after I hung up, was like, who was that? It sounded so familiar. And I'm like, I I'm not telling you. It doesn't matter. But <laughs> it was really disappointing. And, and actually, I ended up speaking to uh, his uh, manager or agent later. And he said, you know, this is what happens sometimes when Hollywood people play businessman. They kind of think that's what they're supposed to do. And, um, you know, don't worry about it. Like, we, we got this and, it, and it's handled. But, but yeah, I've definitely, I've definitely been uh, yelled at uh, pretty aggressively. But my thing about Hollywood people and part of my fascination with them always, even when I wrote Madison and Vine, was um, I, I kind of think that it's a really fun industry to watch. And what's interesting is the people who are, I call it, I, I, I call it, kind of define it as either they're in on the joke or they're not. Um, and some of them really think it's real, and, and that's kind of can be comic in its own way, but a little bit sad to watch. Uh, and others who just kind of realize, you know, um, they, you know, they're in on the joke, and and doesn't mean they don't take what they do seriously, um, but they don't take it all so seriously that they lose sight of, you know, what it is they're actually supposed to be doing. Yeah, there's a certain preciousness that some people hold for every thing, every project they take on, and every breath they take, and it's like. Dude, this thing is a paper boat in the ocean. Like, if it comes out great, 
wonderful. And if it doesn't come out great, then like we just move on to the next thing. Yeah, it's and then not gonna... th there's the question of when is it about creative integrity and yeah. when is it actually just about power? And in Hollywood, it's uh, a lot of times it's just often about power. Yeah. Um, everywhere you've gone, you've essentially created a content studio. Sometimes agencies create content studios. Sometimes brand put, brands put the word films after the brand and suddenly they're a film entity. As someone who has created these entities successfully, when are in-house studios beneficial business drivers and, and when are they bullshit sticks? Um, it's, it's, it's a good question. I think and it depends on the intent uh, in which they're created. You know, I think um, I think Pepsi had really great reasons for creating its entertainment um, studio that, that made a lot of sense, but but may have overreached in some of in some of what they did and in, in the scale and scope of what they were they were trying to accomplish and how much they pulled in house. And I think, um, you know, again, I, I think the interesting thing is, are you doing it ultimately as a brand if you're creating an internal studio um, for, you know, to pull more stuff in house to do it more efficiently? Uh, do you believe you can actually make better things? Um, I think the key is always um, the ones that to me go wrong are usually when they cut out um, agencies, outside production partners, outside voices, in essence, because ultimately uh, the the talent that you can fully hire into an, an, an in-house agency, uh, if that if those are the only people you're dealing with, they could be really talented, but at a certain point you're all talking to yourselves. Right. And I think anywhere you go, um, this idea that you're always open to people outside giving you their perspective, their input, their creativity is something that, that is really important. So... I think when those things are done to help facilitate it on the brand side but still work with a lot of outside partners, they can really work. And if it's about pulling everything in-house, especially if the end goal is really just efficiency, they often don't. Yeah, you'll be efficient, but you'll be incredibly limited and narrow in your output. I mean, no matter how talented you are as a director or producer, like everyone only has so many shots in their bag. Right. But I, to me, it's like the joy of working at an agency is the diversity of of creativity and like you might be working on something highly comedic you know from nine to twelve and then something incredibly emotional from one to four um for two totally different brands with two totally different objectives and our ability to toggle in between those things is kind of the joy of the job at least for me but um in the production of those things when it's the same person i mean i i'm sure you felt it as a creative leader it's like that's why you need to surround yourself with great people is your feedback even at no matter no matter how long you've been in the business like you're at a certain point you're going to be limited in how you look at and assess ideas versus gosh have you ever had someone who's worked for you you know creative direct something that you didn't really touch and you look at it and you go man this is great and i don't know that i would have said yes to this right yeah no totally i think you know a lot of times i i i've you know there are times where you love it you know i love it if 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 i'm the one who comes up with a great idea or if i'm heavily involved in shaping something that that's all an an amazing awesome feeling especially for your own ego uh, but i often think about um you know years ago uh i remember i went to see uh tom carroll when he was at um uh, tbwa uh day still in, in la and um i asked him i was at ad age and i and i sat in his office one day and i asked him kind of seriously what do you do all day what is your actual job? You get up in the morning, you get dressed, you kind of ask me this, you come to work, what do you do? And he said, my job is to create the conditions and to build a bubble around Lee Clow so that Lee Clow can be Lee Clow. And I think what's really been interesting in that that I've kind of has stuck with me 
um, when I've had leadership roles like this is essentially my job is to give people, you know, some a vision, direction, and the tools they need to succeed, and then just basically create the space and get out of their way and create the conditions in which they can do their best work and be their best. And, and this idea that something's going to be better just because I touch it is is a complete fallacy. And and I think there are, uh, you know, some creatives who who feel like they have to touch everything or else they even can't feel a pride in it. And and that's pretty unfortunate to me. I think sometimes when I just have created the conditions for someone to to do something great and I haven't touched it, I can be just as proud of it in the world. Yeah. Related to your your time on the can jury this year, you know, given your given your time as a member of the press, what is your reaction to the sort of feverish obsession today with media impressions as a key indicator of success? You know, every case study ends with the media impressions and who covered it and um, and how it traveled around the world through news. Um, as an industry, are we are we thirsty for the right things? Are we judging our work in the right way? No, we're definitely not. It's kind of funny. I think we we all know it now. It's like in any any show, the judges will, um, you know, immediately say, "How many was that? Forty billion uh, impressions, or four hundred billion, or four billion? You know, just, just these numbers that that are meaningless. Don't, don't and, you find that the judges make fun of it? But then when it's not in there, they're like, "Well." Where's the, yeah. where's the shit? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, what are they hiding? Why didn't they tell us? Why didn't they have that page where all the different headlines from Ad Age and Ad Week and Campaign flash by? And then, and then why didn't they have a bunch of tweets that are representative of the yeah. audiences? It's, it's, it's all goofy shit, and I think it's kind of like we have to cure ourselves of it, get it out of there. Um, I think people don't know more meaningful ways to talk about it. A lot of times clients will not let you talk about actual results, even if there have been – you know, sometimes there will be you know, a sales number with an arrow, up arrow – um, next to it, but uh, you know, it's 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 really interesting to figure out, you know, what is it? It's already hard enough in a in a in a, in a judging situation to, to to make sure that you're not judging the quality of the case study uh, versus the actual idea, um, and then you have all this other nonsense. And I think I think it's best to try and wash that stuff out of it. You know, PJ Pereira, uh, who I know has been on this show as well, um, and and who I, I admire greatly, um, PJ. Uh, served as the entertainment jury president at Cannes at one point, I think two years before I did my second stint. And I asked him, um, what instruction did you give the jury? What were you guys looking for? How did you kind of help, you know, set that up? And and he gave me a filter, which I've now used for any anything I've judged since then, uh, which is, is it worthy of a person's time and a brand's dollars? And I think for content, that's really the best way to think about it is if somebody just voluntarily, again, this is not intruding and interrupting, uh, they voluntarily choose to spend time with it. Uh, was it worthy of their time? And did the brand get you know, the value out of the investment in terms of the business uh, you know, KPIs they're looking for? And I think if you can just bring everything back down to that, in, in a way, I found that to be a really great filter for looking at work. When's your last day at Digitas? Uh, this Friday, November 15th. I love these these sort of rare time capsule conversations that I have with people who are in your spot right now. Cause you know, big career moves are rare. You know, they only happen a couple times in our lives and you're in this moment of transition right now. You're probably emotionally all fucked up right now. Totally. You're, 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 are you, wh- where are you at emotionally? Are you feeling, um, are you feeling nostalgic? Are you feeling, you know, you're, you're, you're saying goodbye to people who you've worked really closely with for five, six years. Yeah. So somebody actually texted me this morning, today is your last Tuesday at Digitas. And I was like, <laughs> what are you going for there? <laughs> He's a friend and I love him. But like, what, 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 are, you, what are you trying to? Um, it's interesting. I, I, I don't know what I feel right now. Um, there's a lot of 
a lot of chaos and it's not bad, but there's just a lot going on. I'm transitioning out of one job. I'm prepping for another. I'm planning a move across country for the third time in four years. Um, uh, you know, I've got a lot going on with my friends and my family. And the truth is people keep saying, you know, my, my favorite question right now <clears throat> is, are you excited? It's like, I, I, don't, I don't know. Like, I, you know, that, that, that when, I'm, when I'm there, I'm sure I'll be excited. Yeah. Um, whenever I get on a call with people from Hulu and we start talking about some of the stuff that's going to come, I get excited about it. But right now, my life is kind of chaos. And I'm trying to figure out. I'm, I'm, I'm lucky enough to get I'm getting about three weeks off in between uh, these, these two gigs. And I'm trying to decide between do I go off to some silent meditation retreat? Do I take some wild vacation? Or this is currently my favorite. Do I just sit on the couch and stare at the wall for three weeks? Yeah. Just let my brain take a break from everything. Your brain will take a break. It never stops working. It's but, true. But uh, at least that at least creates the illusion of letting your brain rest, then, right. then that seems beneficial. Or do I go have coffee with all of the people who I haven't talked to in years who've suddenly popped out of the woodwork um, based on wanting something from me and my new job? That yeah. could be fun as well. Three weeks isn't enough, man. Uh, These moments don't come around very often. They don't. You know, so I, I, I've had friends, and I'm sure you have, who, who take that new job and they're leaving on a Friday and you go, when do you start? And they're like, next Tuesday or whatever. And it's just like, and I always, we, we all always like to say, if I'm going to make that big move, I'm going to take a tremendous amount of time off and the truth is I had to fight, um, not fight any particular person, fight schedules, fight realities, fight holidays um, to even make it three weeks. And I'm, I'm really grateful for three weeks. It's, it's going from one big, awesome job to another big, awesome job. But, I mean, it, they seem so different. Um, I mean, just structurally, you're going from managing, you know, hundreds of creatives around the world to, you know, in these three weeks, how are you thinking about rewiring your mindset to – you know, operate not just in a different environment and a different culture, but just, you know, in a different structure where maybe what's asked of you personally is going to be quite a bit different than sort of, you know, your ability to, you know, ask for team, you know, tell teams the outcome you want and then let them sort of surprise you with the answer. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think what's, what's really interesting is in some ways there are people who look at my career and say, you were a journalist, then you were on the business side of media, then you were doing content, then you were doing creative now you're going back to a media entertainment role. And, and to me, it's, it's always just been storytelling is the center of what I do. Like all, all I actually really want to do is, is fucking tell great stories and make yeah. stories that, that, that get an audience around a campfire, that, that get them coming back. Um, I don't want to oversimplify it, but really in some level, uh, you know, that's, that's the thing. And what, what's really cool is, you know, right now at least, in, in this idea of getting to – Start from scratch, but but the but the job that I'll have at Hulu in a lot of ways is the same job I have at Digitas, and I just think it's a different um, place from which to impact this. Which is, you know, Hulu has said publicly that they would like at least fifty percent of their ad revenue to come from non-intrusive formats within the next three years, and it's a really fascinating. If you think about the idea that you know, not only the streaming war is an exciting place to be right now, um, but you know, if if the experience of streaming. Uh, for a viewer, uh, programming should be very different than watching television, then by definition, the experience of advertising within there has to be very different as well. And to me, this is just one more opportunity, maybe um, even from a more from a higher impact platform to help brands create and tell stories that are worthy of people's time. And that's the most exciting thing to me is just having more at-bats to get to do that. Do you anticipate that that happens directly with brands or that agencies play a role as sort of the conduit and that in some ways you're you're in the role of client for some 
portion of your day. Yeah, it's it's got it's got to be both. I mean, yeah. I think again, we want to work with uh, with anybody uh, that we can. I, I'm I'm definitely not looking to cut agencies out of that process. I think it's you know who does that come to us with and who's the best partner uh, to make something with. And yeah. you know, I, I have I have friends in the business who are on the you know brand marketer client side, as we often call it, which is weird because it defines it in relationship to an agency. But uh, I have friends who are brand marketers who have already said, hey, I can't wait for you to get there. We can talk. And I have obviously agency friends. Uh, and what's really cool is to is to is to get in touch with people like a PJ and just say, hey, let's now we get to do cool shit together yeah. instead of just you know competing and me being jealous of all the cool shit you're doing. I yeah. get to do it with you. You mentioned Jay Goodman. I worked for him at CAA and you know, it's no it comes as no shock that a lot of creatives have a secret ambition to spread their wings into TV and film. And so, you know, I found it I went into that job at CAA with my eyes pretty wide open, but I would interview other creatives who'd come in and I got the sense pretty quickly that they thought that there was like a like a lunch hall where they would crack a joke at the CAA lunch hall and then some, you know, comedy agent or film agent would go, you there, (laughs) you're hilarious. How would you like to, you know, write the next Steven Spielberg movie? And it's like, what I try to explain to people is, you know, if you want to come here, this is an awesome job, but make no mistake, it's going to feel like you're closer to Hollywood, but actually you're further away because you're viewed more as the agent, the representative than as the content creator. So if you want to be a content creator, Go with God, but the way you do that is quit your job and start writing. Um, so, like, as you enter this job, it actually seems like that's a you know Hulu is different than CAA. You guys are content creation; it's a true content platform, and it you know it allows for uh, so many different forms of content and original entertainment properties. But like, you know, how do you view sort of the responsibility of a marketing role going into a job like that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you know, and it's interesting because there, there's two there's two core parts to the job I'm taking because the the one side of it is the is the is the brand studio. The other side of it is taking con, uh, creative control of the existing internal studio that does marketing for the shows for the network itself, um, uh, and that's an existing team and, and and helping to pull that forward. And so you know, the the job is really grounded in marketing, and it's really all about. You know, what I think is really awesome is there's really this relentless focus on not how do we create a better advertising experience, but how do we create a better viewer experience? And that's a big part of what drew me there ultimately was really believing. There's a lot of people who say things like that in the business, but but it's backed up very clearly that that's necessary, that the, the viewer experience has to be a different one. They're going to demand it and you have to create it. And I think that's just a, to me, I'm just going in with that idea first of like, how do we create better things for viewers? Yeah. Not specific to any previous agency you've been at, but you know, in this time of reflection, that maybe hasn't even started yet. So, if it's an unfair question, but what about working at an agency will you miss the most? And maybe what about working at a traditional agency will you miss the least? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'll miss I'll miss the politics the least. Um, you know, these places, having worked within two big holding companies with, within the business, can just get political in a way that sometimes just feels ridiculous and yeah. it feels like we can't get out of our own way. Um, you know, and I think it, it's, 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 you know, maybe cliche to say, but, but it's individual people, um, that I'll, that I'll miss the most. And I think what's really interesting and what's interesting about a, a place like Digitas in particular is because it is a media agency, creative agency, data agency, technology agency, you're really working with a, with a real diverse, um, uh, set of skills, backgrounds, uh, capabilities and and so people who you maybe uh, normally wouldn't be that close to you get to be that close to 
um, you know, some some data scientists and technologists and, and others, you know, whom, you know, in, in, a, in an agency that is, a, is purely a media agency or creative agency, you might not get as much exposure to. Um, I think that's been part of the fun is just the diversity of left and right brain and hybrid uh, thinkers that I've that I've gotten to work with. Yeah. As one looks at your resume, the move to Hulu feels like such a natural progression in many ways. But, you know, in other ways, it can also be viewed as a big leap. Um, when you take a new position, what is the right amount of like in over your head that one should feel? Yeah. Is that is that a quality that you look for in, a, in, in any of the jobs that you've taken? It's a great question. Um, I, I, I think that um, you could probably look at my career and say that I was in over my head in every job I ever took, and and this one's no different. And that, to me, is the really exciting thing: is 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 feeling like you have enough of the skill sets and enough of the common threads, and and you can see the things that maybe even others um, can't about what you know skill sets from your last job you're going to employ uh, in this one. But uh, the the learning curve, um, it to me, is the most fun place to be. You know, in the, in the last. Uh, year and a half at Digitas, we consolidated um, brand creative, experience design, or design overall, uh, content and production. They had all actually been fairly siloed um, within Digitas, and we combined those all into what we called connected creative and experience design by far, and design was the biggest um, learning curve for me. It's, a, it's, it's, the, it's the part of the business that I'd had the least exposure and interaction to earlier, and it was the most exciting, fun thing about the job in the last year. So I think, like, jump in over your head as long as you, you know, know you have at least some basic swimming skills, you'll figure out the rest. Yeah. I remember being at CPB and, and, and getting, you know, pulled into client meetings uh, and doing creds presentations at a relatively, you know, young age when part of the, the role in that room is to use the word we. You know, we did many we did, you know, Burger King, like, and I'm supposed to be saying this, even though, you know, I was barely out of college when we did all of those things. I barely knew this was an industry when we did all of those things, but I had to represent work that that came way before me and that built a legacy that I, you know, I personally had no part in building. I was there to, you know, help build the next chapter. And, and the same can be true for you. Like, you know, you're going to a company that is a, you know, a trailblazing content platform that has helped sort of you know, expand and define what content can be in the 21st century. Their legacy to date is incredible, and it's just the tip of the iceberg. Like, how long does it take for you to, especially you're assuming a leadership role from day one, to start saying, you know, it, is, it, is it part of being a professional to to adopt we right away, or does it take some time to, stick, to, sit, to refer to yourself and Hulu as we? I think I think um, I've probably already done it on a couple of phone calls, and I'm sure when I'm there, I'll also um, talk about Digitas and call. I think I talked about Ad Age to you earlier in this podcast, and, and used the phrase "we." So, some to some degree, these things are always part of you. But I think you know, one, I'm very comfortable, kind of right away, going in somewhere and 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 falling into the okay, what are we doing? Who are we working with on this? You know, what are we best at? What what gaps do we have? Like, I think that's kind of a um, that's a that's a natural okay place for me. I think almost as a leader, you have to be not arrogantly, but just kind of confidently. Uh, okay, I'm here. What are we doing now? Where are we going? Yeah, they need you to do that. Yeah. yeah. Um, I like to end all of these conversations with the last three questions. The first is, what is the word or phrase of advertising jargon that makes your skin crawl the most? Millennial. 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 By the way, target audience. Consumer is a horrible word. Yeah. Um, these are all anytime any any of these words that seem to substitute for human 
Uh, you know, I think it's amazing when people talk about millennials, they really sound like they're not talking about any humans I've ever met. And, and you know, you get this like conversations, what do they do? What do they eat? Where do they sleep? How do they speak? You know, and, and it just gets ridiculous. I think we just tie ourselves up in knots. Branded content is, is a horrible phrase. I've not come up with much better ones. Um, sometimes people just say entertainment, sometimes you know, they say content, but content's just, it's such an awful uh, word, and I apologize for any role I've had uh, in putting it out there. And if I can just give a special runner-up prize to the thank you slide, <laughs> that really sucks. <laughs> what should you end the presentation with, if not a thank uh, you slide? You're welcome, maybe. Oh. <laughs> We've given you a lot of free thinking. It's <laughs> a great point. No, the, the millennial thing I, I've thought about quite a bit. It's like, yeah, on the one hand, we're talking about this as like this caged mystical creature and in doing so, we're generalizing like, you know, hundreds of millions of people um, who, you know, who maybe share some qualities in common. And there is value to be gleaned from looking um, at trends generationally. Um, but on the other hand, you start falling into this weird wormhole in rooms where you're talking about things like, you know, in um, generationally first where, yeah, just these sweeping generalizations um, that if someone was recording it, it'd be like, we, we must sound so stupid. Well, they, you know, they're really into meaning, yeah. but they don't like carbonated drinks. Like, who? All of them? Right. Some of them? I love the, uh, they like music, really. Yeah. So, they're, so they're humans. <laughs> Got it. Right. I love it. Anytime I, I've had clients say to me, you know, at certain points, like, oh, we've discovered something amazing about our target audience. They like music. Yeah. I go, we all like music. Yeah. There's not a human being on the planet who doesn't like music. <laughs> like, yeah. Boomers liked music too, turns yeah, out. Exactly. Uh, next question is, what is the most mortifying response you ever received from clients to some work that you presented at any point in your career? Uh, just a straight up not interested. Um, I, I, I would maybe appreciate that. Yeah. Thank you for your candor. Yeah. No, I, I, I just, we were talking about, you know, content being such an uphill uh, argument. And, you know, literally, I, I, was, I was with a client not that long ago made this gigantic case uh, for why um, part of the budget going into the next year had to be devoted and there were particular things being done. You've got to set aside this money. You've got to do this. And, and I thought I'd made this really compelling argument for everything, including how it was going to impact the business and why it was going to be a great way to advance the brand and drive sales. And, and at the end, he just said, nope, no thanks. <laughs> and that, I don't know, that somehow is, I know, I know yes and no is better than maybe, but can really hurt when you think you you just I've just set this up perfectly and he's gonna I've just won him over. Yeah, you're su you're supposed to say you like it in the most efficient way possible to get out of the room and tell me you know it's kind of sweeping platitudes like you know this gives us a lot to think about and like you know let us let us uh, you know regroup internally all of these code words for like not in a million fucking years. Yeah, sal happening. salespeople would rather I know say that it should be a straight yes or no, but I, I I'm okay with like easing me out. Yeah. <laughs> The last question may be difficult for you to answer because what may have been impossible to date may be, may be possible now that you're at Hulu. But the last question is called the one that got away, which is, you know, what is that idea that you, you tried to sell or that you fell in love with? It might have been 10 years ago or it might have been yesterday that you just, you know, you thought was so awesome that you could never forget, even though for whatever reason, you know, they weren't buying yeah, there, there was a really cool project, and and um, uh, I won't. I, I, unfortunately, I won't name names. That's so terrible for a former journalist to I know. do to weaken my own stories. <laughs> um, but we had lined up, you know, against uh, something that had 
you know, probably a $20 million budget we had put together. Hey, we can create with this very well-known director six episodes of this uh, incredible original series that is so connected to what we're trying to do here. And we've like got this down to under a million dollars and you'll have six full-length episodes with a great name attached, great storytelling. It'll be this amazing um, thing and it takes up only, you know, 5% of, of the budget and and it got it got so close and everything, every every partner, everybody creatively, the director, when we brought the idea to him, I actually sold the idea with the director's name attached without having told him. And then I called him up and I said, oh, I've signed you up for something. I hope you actually like it. And I, and I explained it to him and he said, I'm, I'm fucking in. That's great. Let's do it. Um, and it got so far along and then it just got shut down for no good reason that ever came back to us. Um, and the money went into banner ads or something else, and and it was just kind of one of those like, I'm I'm I know that like I'm I'm all about forgiveness and not having regret and not looking in you know regretting things in the past, but like I'm taking this one to the grave. <laughs> I'm actually add a bonus question here because you're such a student of branded content and branded entertainment, and you've watched it mature over the last few decades, and you've been part of that maturation. What is a you know I, the the reason I'm asking you this is because you brought up that Denny's thing which I really loved and it was right up my alley um, and it got some traction but I look at that and I think to myself like that should have been a bigger deal than it was for you what is a piece of branded content maybe that you had nothing to do with something that you've seen as a jury member where you look at it and you're like this was so gr- like this should have been way more famous way more impactful way more sort of culturally resonant than it was maybe it was ahead of its time is there is there a piece of work that comes to mind when i say that description you know i mentioned it earlier but 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 surprisingly maybe bmw films because i think if you're in our industry if you're you and i that's I, you don't have to tell you anything more than that right bmw films you know exactly what i'm talking about and and yeah it, it may have hit culture to some degree at the time but not really i mean most right. most average consumers wouldn't have known it existed it didn't necessarily get you know the attention and the play that it could have and should have and it was really so bold uh for what it was uh, the directors who were attached, the storytelling, the role of the vehicle, uh, the brand's ability to step back and let the story, you know, and the, and the audience come first while still having the brand totally in there in ways that were essential. Allowing someone to bleed to death in the backseat of a car. When have you ever seen that in a car ad since then, right? It's just, it was just so groundbreaking in so many ways. And I think it's one of those things that we all in the, in the ad industry put up on the pedestal that it deserves. But I, but I think if you went around and asked most consumers, they'd have no idea what you were talking about, unlike, say, a great film that might have come out that same year. Yeah. Well, Scott, man, I've really looked forward to talking to you. And, and as I you know, study your career, you, to me, embody someone who, you know, who proves that careers can take many different shapes when you're not intimidated by new challenges and you're up for trying new things and, and knowing that you'll figure it out as you go uh, and sort of trusting in your ability. And that sort of seems to be the theme of your career. So I, w- I wish you a ton of luck at Hulu. I know you're going to do awesome work there. And, uh, and thanks for joining me today. Thanks, me. Thanks for having me. Life's an adventure. We'll see where it goes next. Cool, man. All right. Thank you very much to Scott Donatan. Thank you, as always, to my partners at JSM Music and the executive producer of this podcast, Jeff Fiorello. And as always, if you're liking the pod, subscribe, rate, review. And until we talk again, peace. Peace.